Father, we come before you, we come before this text, uh, praying that you would be near to us, that you would, uh, in your mercy, just draw us into the reality that we can bring our guilt to you, um, the, the good news that uh, even in our guilt there is redemption. Father, I pray that your spirit would be amongst us, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to your word, that we'd be formed by it, that uh, the reality that your word calls us to would become more real uh, than all the competing uh, stories and realities that we see out there and in the world. Uh, would you bless this time that we've set aside to receive your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. A uh, quick uh, announcement. We've been doing this kind of every week of this series, uh, looking at prayer and emotion, uh, going through the Psalms, uh, which is that we believe here at First Baptist Church that Sunday morning is, isn't, isn't enough. It doesn't, it's not enough for us to be uh, living the good life with God if we just uh, come on Sunday mornings, but instead we have to uh, embody it throughout the week. So we put together uh, a few resources uh, to make that possible. If you are interested in growing in prayer, growing in emotional intelligence, emotional health, uh, according to scripture, according to God's way, uh, there's a table out there. And I just wanted to highlight one resource for you. It's a book. It's called A Praying Life. And one of the sweet gifts of God to me is that I get to read a lot in my job. Uh, so thank you for that. And this is probably the best book that I've read uh, all year in terms of its, its uh, effect on my spiritual life and my understanding of prayer, both uh, kind of understanding-wise and also practice and stuff. So uh, there's, I think there's a couple, a couple more out there. This is also one you could buy. Uh, there's a requested donation. But if money is an object, please just take it. Not, not here to make money. Uh, but it, uh, it, it captures the relational reality of prayer, which each of these psalms is showing us that we can come to our Father with our emotions pre-reflective. We don't need to package it and tie a bow around it. We can just come to our Father and also just gives us some practical uh, things to do. So if you're interested in growing in prayer, I encourage you to pick that up and, uh, and, and make some time for it. You know, a lot of us aren't readers anymore, if you will, because uh, we uh, have you know, screens and people can tell us everything. And that's okay. We not, you don't have to be a reader necessarily to be a Christian. Uh, but if we're thinking about what our hearts desire or what we spend our time doing to, to shape our hearts' <laughs> desire, you know, I think something like a book a year might, you know, might be uh, a reasonable goal for all of us. Not to be uh, a brainiac with a, you know, our, our head, a brain on a stick, but simply to uh, open our hearts to, to what God might, might do through, through learning and growing. So uh, there, there's a pitch. I encourage you to, to pick that up and would love to hear your thoughts uh, on, on that book. Camille and I were watching a show uh, earlier this week, and in this show there was uh, neighbors in a, an apartment complex that lived right across the hall, and uh, one neighbor uh, was a just a, a, a single lady with cats, and then she the other neighbor was being really loud, so she goes over and says, hey, could you turn the music down a little bit? And he said he, he had earrings and a little goatee, and he's like, I'm just living my truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. It's like, but I'm trying to sleep and the music's really loud. I'm just living, but you wouldn't want me to not live my truth, right? You wouldn't want, want me to not be true to myself, right? And, she's, and this movie takes place uh, in the Northwest where everybody's very liberal and relative, and she's like, well, I guess, yeah, I guess it's bad to tell you not to live your truth. She comes back uh, a couple weeks later, and she hears screams like someone is being hurt, and he comes to the door, and he's got blood on his hands, and he's like, won't let her look in. And it's like, are, are you okay? Like, is everything all right? I thought I heard screams. I'm just living my truth. You wouldn't want me to not live my truth, would you? 
And it turns out that he was actually a serial killer. And the police come to arrest this man uh, because he was a serial killer. And this big, stern policeman is like, You're, you have the right to remain silent. He reads the whole riot act. And the, this is a comedy show. It's meant to exaggerate to prove a point. The, the guy says to the policeman, but I'm just living my truth. You wouldn't want me to not live my truth. And he's like, thank you for explaining that to me. You're so right. We're so sorry we bothered you as you were. Go ahead. I bring that up because uh, in our society, we live in an individualistic place where no one can tell us what to do. And obviously, that's an exaggerated form that I thought was funny, but maybe not. So sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, living, living our truth to an exaggerated form. Uh, and, and, and you see that in, in talking to, to, to anyone. Like, well, that's not how I would do it, but you, you do you. Uh, and we all want to, to do what seems right to us. And I think a big part of that, of living our truth, being true to ourselves, speaking our truth, is, is a relentless pursuit of getting rid of guilt. I feel like guilt is something that we as a culture have decided is, is old school, is not needed anymore, it's just a result of oppressive cultural norms that we need to shake off and live our truth. And I know we're not in the Northwest. I know we might not be as overtly relativistic as maybe some cities uh, or places, but I think we all live in a, a world where we don't want anyone to tell us what to do, no one to step, step on our toes uh, because we want to just be ourselves and, and not feel guilty about doing what we want to do. But I think if we're honest, despite our relentless pursuit to not feel guilty or to live to our own standards, it's just really not working. I think a lot of us live with a, a lot of shoulds and oughts. We have this, this ideal standard, this ideal version of ourselves that we believe that we should live up to and we fall short of what we should be doing or how we should be. And while largely maybe as a culture we've rejected the Bible as any kind of standard, I think we've, we've come up with, our, with new Bibles, with, with new standards that I just wanted to kind of bring, bring home to you and see if this resonates with you, if you feel any guilt from these, these sources. The first new Bible, the first standard that we often feel guilty by is the Pinterest woman, the perfect Pinterest woman. Anybody here on Pinterest? No? Okay. Yeah, we got some nods. Okay. We got some, some nervous giggles. It's okay. It's okay to be on Pinterest. But the perfect Pinterest woman is both really fit and makes amazing cheesecakes and eats them all the time, is uh, a great mom and also kills it at her career. I actually found a quote from a, a, an article that uh, has a woman des describing how she feels from Pinterest. She says, Pinterest makes me feel like a de dejected loser. See, I missed the memo that said we ladies are now expected not only to hold down jobs, but also to knit and craft and bake from scratch again. Wasn't it just a few years ago that all signs pointed to the rejection of these things? Had me thinking it was okay to use cake mixes and purchase my scarves. But Pinterest jolted me into a new reality. Apparently, I have a lot of catching up to do. The problem is I'm not catching up. With Pinterest, I'm actually just amassing a huge to-do list that I'm unlikely to check a single thing off of. It's yet another layer, layer of virtual ADD. Ooh, I should totally craft those adorable tin can luminaries for about 10 minutes until I totally want to make that delicious looking guacamole salsa dip. We live 
with because we can compare ourselves to the internet, which is everyone all the time putting their best self forward, we can feel very guilty. And then, and I think there's a, a man version of that that we want to make a ton of money and fix everything ourselves, but also pay for everybody to fix our stuff for us because we are a man and move up in our career and. Someone sent me this week, uh, I believe as a joke, I'm hopeful as a joke, a pastor's version of, of this. The ideal pastor, the perfect pastor, preaches for 10 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 in the morning until 10 at night but is a great family man. He makes $400 a week and gives 100 to the church but drives a nice car, buys lots of books, and has a well-dressed family. He's 36 years old and has been preaching for 40 years. He has a burning desire to work with youth and spends all his time with the senior citizens. He makes 15 calls a day on church members and also spends all his time evangelizing non-church members and is always in the office when you need him. So we, we can all have these, these ideal standards. I just wanted to try to like laugh at them a little bit uh, because we don't really say it out loud a lot because we kind of jump ship on on God's standard, but we, we can compare ourselves. Whether, maybe it's not Pinterest, maybe it's different social media, maybe it's just the commercials that try to sell you things to, to assuage your guilt and your inadequacy. The psalm today shows us how to pray our guilt, that what we should do with guilt is not to try harder and pin more things on our bulletin board or work harder in our jobs or whatever, but instead we should bring it to God. And as we bring it to God, we see this psalm showing us how to deal with our guilt, how, how to process our guilt. And one of the beautiful things about psalms is that it's poetry, that it gives us images and feelings that we can, that we can use to kind of uh, frame, frame how we experience life. And so we, we have an image, we have kind of this perfect metaphor here. Uh, it starts with a sinkhole, and then it gives us a rope out of the sinkhole, and then it, it shows us the climb. So that's what we're going to go through as we, as we go through this psalm. Looking at guilt, looking at this, this feeling of not measuring up. Let me read verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. The way this psalm helps us understand guilt is that it feels like being in a sinkhole, like, like quicksand. Like there's, there's no footholds, there's no, no way to get out. The harder we try to get out, the only uh, more deeply we sink. And this idea of, of a sinkhole or a pit of guilt is, is really common throughout the psalms. We see other, other authors in the psalms say things like, Save me, O God, I'm up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. Or Psalm 40 says, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a psalm of gratitude kind of on the other side. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mire and the mud, and put my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So have you ever, ever felt that way? Where it feels like life is piling on and you have no hope, like that lady talking about Pinterest. The to-do list just grows and you are never going to catch up. You're never going to live up to the standard. Never going to be enough. We see in scripture that that is a common way to, 
feel as a human. That is part of being human is to feel that way. That there's not something wrong with you necessarily, that, but that's normal. And that's something that God wants us to bring to him. If I feel like I'm in a miry pit, I'm up to my neck, and I don't have any way to get out. I don't have a foothold. And verse 2 shows us that uh, this is particularly talking about grace. He's saying, out of the depths I cry to you. Or he's talking about um, guilt. Because the psalmist next says, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. When you're sinking in a pit, you don't cry for mercy, you cry for help. But here, because this is a metaphorical pit of, of guilt, he's, he's crying for mercy. What is, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. When we're guilty, when we're justly guilty, we don't get what we deserve. The psalmist here knows that he's guilty, feels it piling on, sinking into it, and he, and he calls, out, calls out for mercy. Guilt is the, is the failing of a standard, and when, when we fail a standard, there's naturally consequences or punishment of it. The opposite of guilt, just for clarity, is innocence. We, looking at what, what it means to not live in guilt would be to live free in, in innocence. And I think the most, the, the, the most common way this comes up in our lives as a church family, in my life, uh, especially if you have any church background where you, there's lots of standards rolling around, depending on the church you grew up in, is just shoulds and oughts. You just feel shoulds and oughts all the time. When someone asks you how, how you're doing, the shoulds and oughts come, come in. You live with kind of this inner critic or maybe an inner committee uh, that's, that's critiquing you. What would this person say? What would my dad say about this? If this person knew this, I should be doing more. Where do the shoulds and oughts come out in your life? Because a lot of times there's particular places of, of our life where the shoulds and oughts come in. Mom shaming is a real thing, uh, which can, can really hurt this process. Is it with our parenting? Is it with our job, with our finances? We have shoulds and oughts of what we should be, what we should do. I've said this a lot. I won't qualify it. We want, we want scripture to kind of help us understand and shape our imaginations and our hearts for, what, for how to feel things. We talked about emotions. Uh, we all are born with them, but we're not born knowing how to deal with them. We all need to be uh, educated. Uh, just, that's why they call it emotional intelligence. You need to, to grow in it. No one is born with intelligence. It's something that you acquire. And so, so I hope that, that this, this framework of, of guilt as a pit as a, as a miry bog uh, is helpful to you just to be able to name it when that feeling comes. I'm feeling guilty. If you can address that, it will be unbelievably powerful in, in your life, in your relationships. We can feel, when we feel like everything's piled on, we start lashing out at our spouse or those around us. It's because we feel guilty. We feel like we're not measuring up. We feel defensive. So how do we get out of the sinkhole? Well, this psalm gives us a rope. It's a uh, two-part rope, a strand of two cords, if you will. The first part is in verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? What we see here is that 
God has a record. He keeps a record. He has a standard. And it's clear, and he's watching and holding us to it. Now, this might not sound like good news at first, but a clear standard is unbelievable freedom. Franz Kafka uh, is an older author from the 20th century who kind of captured a lot of the disillusionment brought about by enlightenment, and he wrote a novel called The Trial. And it's a classic kind of nihilistic story where a man is accused of a crime, everybody is mad at him, and he spends his whole, the whole rest of his life going from hearing to jail cell, hearing to jail cell, to different prisons. And he keeps asking, what did I do? What's wrong? Like, well, it's, it's really, really bad what you did. But no, no one will tell him. He just lives his whole life, everybody mad at him, paying a punishment, and he doesn't know what he did. It's a miserable way to live. And I think it's, it's part of the reason why we can live in so much guilt is because the standard's always moving or it's unclear. How do we know which standard to live up to? Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? The, the, literal, the literal translation has more of a connotation of God's, God's watching, that God has a standard and, and he's watching. God is the standard. His way, his law is the standard. And believe it or not, even though none of us can stand under God's standard, it's good news because it frees us from all the bogus standards. It frees us from all these fake standards that don't actually lead to life. It frees us from constantly having to judge ourselves or criticize ourselves because we can let God do that. We can let God define reality. We can let God show us what is good and evil. Paul shows us what this is like in uh, 1 Corinthians 4. If you want to flip over there, 1 Corinthians 4, page 1775 uh, in the Pew Bible if you're following along. Paul gives us a great example of what, of what it means to just let God have the standard. To kind of jump ship on holding ourselves to a standard or judging ourselves by a standard. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth where there's lots of conflict, and he himself was co coming under a lot of criticism, a lot of judgment. And look what he says in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time comes. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Do you see Paul's freedom there? He's saying, not only do I not care about you judging, but I'm not even going to worry about myself because God knows my heart. God, God will convict me. I'll trust the Holy Spirit to convict me if there's something there to convict me of. When we let God be God, allow his standard to be the one and allow his judgment according to that standard to be the thing that defines our life and our status, then there's a lot of freedom there. Because there's two responses to guilt. We can either agree with it or we can resist it. And we need to do both of those things depending on the situation. This is the, the art of handling guilt. 
Because I'm sure you might know a guilt-laden person, just a, a frantic, hyper-apologizer, just all wearing their guilt on their sleeve. Uh, a lot of times they're the nicest, most helpful people because they're, they're living from a place of grace. And you know, then they snap at you or something like that. So there, there's, a, there's a, a place where we can, uh, we can agree with guilt too much to the point of our own destruction. So we don't want to do that. But then obviously, probably more common, is that we resist guilt. We ignore it. And I'm sure you can think of people like Hitler, maybe, who we might have hoped would have agreed with guilt a little bit more instead of, instead of totally resisting guilt. How might human history be different if Hitler had ag- agreed with guilt instead of resisting? But we can't always agree and we can't always resist. So how do we know? When we're feeling guilt, when we're feeling that conviction, how do we know what to do? Do we resist it and just say, my conscience is clear? Or do we agree with it? And again, the answer is God's objective standard, God's moral standard. So here's an example of what I'm talking about, because this is immensely practical. Let's test it with the mom shaming. I have a lot of moms in the room, moms-to-be, and, you know, it doesn't take much to feel like you're failing. And I'm new at parenthood and being married to a mom, but I think that is normal, to feel like you're failing as a mom or that there's more that you could do. I think that's just kind of a status quo. No, no one's crushing it. Don't believe the, in, the interwebs. So what we can do, pick any, any kind of thing that you feel guilty about. Maybe I'm not, I don't have time to uh, do cloth diapers or something like that, and I feel guilty about that. Is that. Do we agree or do we resist that? Do we agree or resist that? But we ask the question, is, that a, is using disposable diapers a sin in God's eyes? No, it's not. There's no verse that says disposable diapers are a sin or cloth diapers are next to godliness or anything like that. And so we can resist it. We can, we, can, we can repent of comparing ourselves to people who might use cloth diapers or something like that. But we can resist it. We, don't need, we, don't, we, can, we are free from that standard. We know that we're, that we're okay because that's not in God's, God's law. So there's freedom in being able to reject stuff. But then there's other things where we need to consider, is this something I need to agree with? So, for example, watching stuff on TV. You know, when I was growing up in a little bit more of a maybe conservative Christian environment, uh, which, you know, has baggage I'm working on, but also had a lot of gifts to me as well. There was something that we said, garbage in, garbage out, mostly in reference to watching TV. And I feel like we've just kind of totally jumped ship on any kind of awareness of like, what is it exactly that we're like putting into our brains? What, what is it that we're like filling our, filling our minds with? And so when we watch stuff on TV, you know, it's like one of these things where if, uh, if a sex scene is 20 minutes long, it's considered pornography. But if it's 20 seconds long, it's just primetime television or our Netflix queue. But here's, do we, do we just reject that? Like, oh, that's fundamentalism that, you know, by grace I'm saved, so it doesn't matter. Or is that something that we agree with, that we say, well, what is God's standard? What, is, what does God say regarding this? It says, flee sexual morality. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
So instead of living with a low-grade guilt, like, I know I should, I know I should, we can actually respond. We can actually yes. obey with these little things, with these, with these little things that the Spirit convicts us of. So there's freedom from stuff that's not in God's law, and then there's freedom to obey, knowing that the guilt will go away when we, when we do. Now, I don't want it to make it, make it sound like if we just, oh, just respond to the guilt in the right way, and then everything will be fine. Because our, we see that we can respond to it. We can let it shape us. We can let God's standard mold our life and shape what, how we live. But ultimately, what, 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 is, what is the judgment? Verse 3 says, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? It's rhetorical. The answer is no one. We need a redeemer. Because even if, say, you got rid of all of your TV and phone and everything because you saw that there was, there was some lust in your heart, uh, that lust would probably still be there. It might still come out some other way. Like getting rid of stuff helps us in the battle, but it ultimately doesn't get to what Jesus says, which is don't have lust in your heart in that particular example. What we need is a redeemer. That's the second part of the robe. The first part is a clear standard, God's standard. We're, we're set free from Pinterest and a perfect pastor and the all-American man. And then as we see that standard, we're free from a lot, of, a lot of fake guilt. And then when we see the real guilt, where we fall short of God's standard, it brings us to our need for a redeemer, for forgiveness. Look at verse 4. I'll read, let's start in 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is, there's forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Skip down to verse 7 and 8. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So what these verses show us is that there is forgiveness with their father. When we bring guilt before our father, there is forgiveness. When we put our hope in him and experience his, his unfailing love, with him there is full redemption. Now we're in church, and if you've been in church, you've probably heard something to, those, to that effect before. But tell me if you've ever felt this where we can think, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I know God loves me, but, but I can't really love myself. I once had a man come to me uh, who had had a rough life before he became a Christian, had been walking with Jesus for a long time, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, uh, but was recently just having just that, that miry bog of guilt come. Just things that he had done before he was saved, just piling on, just feeling this hopelessness. And he didn't know how to process it. He's like, should I really not feel guilty at all? I know God's forgiven me, but like, shouldn't I still feel a, a, a little bad? This is what we could call a case of the gospel buts. I know the gospel's true, but... I know the gospel's true, but I can't forgive myself. 
But do you see the, the craziness of that? A holy, eternal God has made a way for your sins to be taken care of, to be redeemed, to your, your guilt to be washed away. And you're saying, but I won't let my guilt go. Because at the end of the day, what this shows us is where our hope is. When the psalmist says, put your hope in the Lord, it shows us that our hope isn't actually in the Lord. Because the Lord is showing us through his word that we are clean when we trust in Jesus. But ultimately, our hope is in our performance, in being good. Where we see that we failed, we see that we need grace, that we're standing in the need of mercy, but we won't receive it. We won't take it. We won't let it be true of ourselves. Our hope is in ourselves. Our hope, our hope, which is why it feels hopeless, which is why we can't receive this mercy, because we only want to be free of guilt on our own terms. This comes out in, as Christians, as we're pursuing God, the, the I'll be okay if kind of idea. Once, like, everything is fine, once my kids start behaving, I'll be okay. As I'm sinking into this sinkhole, I, I'll get out of it once I, start, once I start just winning at life. Once I feel like I, I can do it on my own. Once I have everything, all the plates spinning and, and nothing is wobbling. When I'm a good dad, when I'm getting ahead at work, when my kids are a certain way, or I'm taking care of them in a certain way. A hope, ultimately, is a basis for our future. What do we base our future on? What is, what is the way forward? So we see that, that our, our hope in the Lord is the only way out of our guilt. We say, I, I won't feel guilty when I'm in better shape. I won't feel guilty when my finances are, are right or I can provide more for my kids. Because when we see that, that gospel but, or the I'll be okay, I'll be free of guilt when idea, that's, that's our real God. That's our little G God. It means the biblical God isn't, isn't our God. Which is why we sang the song earlier, Oh, help my unbelief. Because there is a, a reality where as Christians we might know the gospel, we don't believe it in the deep parts of our souls. And the beautiful thing <clears throat> is that, <clears throat> excuse me, redemption is not an abstract thing. We're looking at the rope here. We're looking at the redemption. Uh, is that the redemption comes through a redeemer? It's not a abstract theory or idea, but it's a person. Look at verse eight. It says, "He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins." This is the type of redemption. This is the, t the type of mercy that we receive. It's not an ignorant mercy where we don't really know the full scope of it, but God knows everything that we've done, more even than we do, and he loves us anyways. Our Redeemer is personal in the, in the person of Jesus. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous in order that he might bring us to God. The point is that we might be brought to God through, our, uh, through a man, through Jesus, our Redeemer. 
Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This wasn't like God couldn't look at us, so he sent Jesus to die for us, and, and then he started loving us. But in love, Christ came while we were sinners, while we were rebelling against him, and he died for us. So the rope is the standard that frees us from bogus standards, but also is a little bit of bad news because it shows that we all fall very, very short of God's standard. The problem with guilt is that it's true. It's not a get free of guilt by confessing it enough or ignoring it enough. We get free from guilt when we allow the truth of the gospel. The gospel butts go away and it's just the good news that Christ lived the standard perfectly, God's moral standard perfectly. He, he not only did the shoulds and oughts, he is the shoulds and oughts for us. He never fell short, and he himself will redeem. He knows you, he loves you, he knows everything that you've done. He's not scared by it or intimidated by it, but instead he made a way for you to be brought to him through the blood of Jesus. So that's the rope. What's the climb? How do we take hold of this rope? How do we get out of the sinkhole? We, ha we have the rope thrown to us. What, what do we do? Look at verses 5 and 6. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word... I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for morning. Now, I want to be careful with this language of the climb because I think it's probably been misused in the past uh, by a pastor or two. This is not us climbing our way to God or using our guilt to be a better person. A guilt-driven believer uh, is doomed to fail. And maybe in a contradiction of terms. Trying to fight sin and improve ourselves from a place of guilt or trying to obey the shoulds and ots just will never work. What changes us is, is love, is grace, is this uh, unfailing love of the Lord through, through which we get redemption. So the climb then, the waiting for the Lord is a waiting for grace to be real in our souls, in our hearts, in our bones, not just in our heads, not in just a prayer we prayed at some point, but in our daily life. And I hope this is good news, because if you're like me and you can get stuck in guilt, you can just feel the regret and just the, the weight falling over your head as you sink down into it, there are things that, that you can do to look for the morning. I think it's very significant that the psalmist gives us this image of watchmen at their post, eagerly looking for the sunrise, eagerly looking for the morning to come, for the night to be over. We can structure our lives to, to wait for it. I believe li living into the reality of the gospel is, is a lot like seeing the sunrise. What can you do to make the sun rise? Zero things. None of us have any control over the sun. 
But if we want to see the sunrise, there's a difference between playing video games in the basement versus climbing to the top of a hill. Both of those things, uh, climbing to the top of the hill and waiting for the sunrise is, is putting ourselves in a place of grace. And this is good news, that we don't have to be stuck in our guilt, but we can actually structure our lives to receive this. A couple things ar around this idea of waiting or structuring our lives is one, by definition, waiting means it's going to take a minute. This is not like go and feel guilt no more kind of sermon, but instead let's structure our lives to live in the reality of the mercy we have from God. So we wait with expectation, but we also wait with patience. We know that God is good, that with the Lord there is unfailing love and full redemption, and that he himself will redeem his people. We know that it is true, but we wait for it with expectation. So we, we're going to talk about two things that we see in the text here. Is how, how, how can we wait for this? How can we structure our lives to wait for this? How can we climb to the hill and wait to see the sunrise? We see it in verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. We immerse ourselves in his word and scripture. We do first thing out of the bed, out of bed maybe, before we get out of bed, we try to get some of his word in us. Throughout the day, we, we hope in his word. We look to his word. Consider, consider the difference. If we're wanting to put our hope in God's word, we want to uh, understand what his standard is, that Jesus lived perfectly for us, how might, the, how might your day look different if before you got out of bed, instead of checking the Twitters uh, or Facebook or whatever, you uh, just read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. You didn't come up with any profound theological truths. You just, before you got out of bed, you centered yourself on, on a truth, on God's word, on his, his definition of reality. How might, your, how might our days be different instead of just the, the onslaught of, what whatever is on our phones or god help us our, our work emails how might we be free from bogus standards that are going to accuse us all day long if we start our days with with god's standard it just seems like you know normal christianity is like will you go to church and then Maybe f the freshman team might uh, get a quiet time in in the morning a couple of times a week. And then the, the JV team might get it every week. And then the varsity is for professional Christians uh, who would like read lots of, lots of scriptures throughout the day. Uh, and where it's like only the intense people are going to get nerdy about getting God's word into their life. And, and it's my prayer for us, if you feel kind of stuck in these patterns of thinking and feeling is to, is to get creative. How can we get God's word into our hearts and minds throughout the day? This is not to make God love us more, but to live into God's love. What would it look like if at, at lunch we just, we, we read a psalm or we were just still before God and asked him to show us that he loves us? Another name for Jesus is the word. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. We know that he himself 
is our redemption. He is our redeemer. And so as we immerse ourselves in the word, we know our redeemer more. Redemption is a relationship. Redemption is a relationship with Jesus that is real, that's in part of our daily life. So the first way to, and I realize I'm mixing metaphors, uh, to get out of, this, out of the pit, see the sunrise, climb the rope, get on the hill, whatever, is through community. I think this is so significant. It starts out in verse uh, 1 and 2 where he says, Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. He says, I wait for the Lord. I put my hope, I, in his word I put my hope. And then look how 7 and 8 go. Who's, who's, this, who's the subject? It's Israel. It's God's people. He says, oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We have our author starting in guilt, kind of starting in the miry bog where all he can see is his guilt and just the sinking into his, his falling short. And it ends with him talking to God's people calling God's people with himself to hope in the Lord. One of the ways that we embrace this hope in Jesus' work so that we're free from guilt is by talking about it with, with God's people. We tell God's people. This is a beautiful thing about being a Christian is that you don't have to like, master everything to talk about it with, with other people who believe it. What, what I'm saying here is that Scripture seems to show, the more I study the Psalms, they seem to show this pattern, that this, this bent towards God's people, this inclination to being with the people of God. Because with, with the people of God, there's two things. One, there's clarity, there's added clarity what the standard is. You can be free from the standard of trying to make a lot of money to be good about your, feel good about yourself, or whatever it is, as you're all following God's standard. And then as we all fall short, which we all will, being a part of a church doesn't mean that we're perfect, and then we can speak the truth of the gospel to each other, call each other to hope in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So if feeling stuck, feeling guilty, feeling overwhelmed, feeling constantly falling short of, of God's standard or the, whatever standard that you might hold to, consider your participation with the people of God. Considering the last time you you walked alongside a brother or sister and talked about the hope that we can have in our, our Redeemer. To close, I just want to read uh, a little bit of Psalm, or sorry, Romans 8. Uh, this is on page 1756. I want us all, just this morning, to hear this word as, as the sunrise, as the, the dawn of a new day where we don't have to live in guilt. Because this is true for those of us who put our trust in Jesus alone. This is true of us. And we spend the rest of our life living into this reality. So I'm just going to read it, and then we'll pray. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Father God, I praise you for uh, just the, the beautiful picture of the freedom we can have in Jesus, freedom from guilt. Father, I, I feel both just incredible joy at the, the hope of this reality, that we can live free from guilt, that there's no condemnation uh, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I also feel just so daunted by um, everything uh, in our lives that tries to accuse us and make us feel guilty and uh, all these, these false standards that, that heap things on our heads that aren't, aren't on you. Father, I, I pray uh, for your spirit to be at work here as we talk about uh, receiving mercy, receiving grace, and then the things that we can do to receive it. It's just such a nuance and such a uh, powerful, exciting thing, and, and then also uh, can be dangerous in terms of uh, leaning on our efforts to, to receive it. But I pray, Father, that you would just convict our hearts on ways that we can climb the hill to receive this sunrise of uh, life in the spirit. I pray, Father, that uh, your standard, your reality would become more real to us than, than the world's reality, whatever it is, in, in our careers, in our uh, identity as parents. <coughs> Father, would you, in your mercy, uh, bring the gospel from our heads to our hearts. For, for those, those of us here who haven't yet uh, embraced the gospel, trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would convict of sin, show the, the hopelessness of being okay in our own strength, um, on, on our own efforts, and that we would come to, that they would come to know, know the standard of Jesus in a relationship with him. Thank you for him. Thank you for the beauty of the cross that you redeem uh, through the resurrection and save us to life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>